0: stretching.
1: Maybe we should start for every episode of the podcast, we should start with a stretch as we say Hello, this is at home with Lyndon Drew Scott. <laughs> hey whoa, keep that to yourself. Uh, welcome. Thank you for joining <laughs> us everyone. Welcome. Linda's gonna be in a giggle fit this whole
0: It's because I'm hungry.
1: Introduction for this episode. Uh well we will get food after this is this is important. Food, sleep, and mental wellness, which includes meditation and physical wellness, which includes our stretching.
0: Yes, we learned it from...
1: Jay Shetty, the wise, once monk, Jay Shetty. It's actually, I, I, I really love... Having a conversation with someone like Jay, having a conversation with someone like Greg McEwen. because every Craig. time I talk to one of these uh, these wise, wise individuals, it makes me get energized, and then so I just have to I have to space those conversations out every week so that I keep that energy going. It's like a restart of energy every it's week. It's like
0: in Mario Kart when you have the uh, power the, up. The, the arrow things on the road. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, the little you? speed ups yeah. Little yeah. to the power up. <laughs> Okay, we're not going to start doing meditation yoga at the beginning of every episode of At Home, but I do want to talk about passion and drive.
0: Ooh, very light topics.
1: You hear sometimes people say, you know, what is it you wanted to be when you grow up? Uh, And people talk about when you were younger and what your passions and drive were. And I think a lot of people expect that that same passion and drive, your goals when you're younger... I think a lot of people think that that should just be what you go after when you're older. But that's not always the case. I think a lot of my passions have changed over the years.
0: Yeah, and it's it's a squiggly line. Um, yeah, so passion and drive. I mean, okay, so chatting with Simon and Jonathan... Who are our re, guests this week. Yeah, reignites my passion just to be creative or make something. No matter what it is,
1: anything. I think one thing that gets in the way of people's creativity sometimes is the grind of life, creating a living. You need to keep a roof over your head, uh, um, you know, support your family. However, if there's a way that you can truly go after your passion, not worrying about the cost of things or or whatnot, then you know, I I think there's something fulfilling with that. And then if you can eventually make your passion what sustains you and your family and your way of living, I think that's amazing.
0: Yeah, and I think. That is the dream, right? To to do what you're passionate about, and and have that support, mm-hmm. you and your family.
1: I, do you feel a lot of people, though, or even at, I think in the past, in some of my experiences, um, you sort of the first thing that takes the back burner, it's your passions. I mean, you 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 say you want something, but then you get into the reality of life and and how busy it gets you, and then right away, that's the easiest thing to put in the back burner.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a natural thing. I, I think being able to go after your dream is, it is hard work, but I think it is also a privilege. Um, like when I think about my parents or a lot of immigrant parents, like they you know, a lot of them didn't really have the choice of pursuing whatever their passions were. Like they just had mm-hmm. to put food on the table, yeah. no matter the means. Uh, so I do feel grateful that we can even have the discussion of what do I enjoy and how how do I make money doing that.
1: And I actually think that in today's day and age, we are very fortunate, unlike our parents' generation and and earlier, where we have it's such a connected age and information is so much more readily available. So if I want to learn a certain something, I can hop online and do it. You know, there are a lot of free options to learn a lot of things or spark creativity in different ways that was not available even 10, 15 years ago.
0: Even seven years, even last, I don't know, I'm just- Well, when you think arbitrary. about it too.
1: No, when I was, uh, you know, starting as a uh, young realtor and I started working uh, oh with my clients- gosh, and whatnot. your maps. Yeah, we were going through all of my old, I had old bins of my uh, old documents and my map. I did, there was no, you know-
0: MapQuest
1: or paper maps or Google Maps or anything like that.
0: No, no, I oh, mean no, like there were
1: There were just paper maps. Yeah. And so I, I think it's funny to look back and that wasn't that long ago. You know, that was from mid nineties to 2004. You
0: still have it, right? Yeah. Are you want st- to keep it?
1: I still have you some of it, it, but it's, uh, I was the master of the paper map. It was such a, a harder time, but we just, we worked through it. We worked through the grind and, and did it and made things happen. And I think um, to keep that kind of drive in a more connected age like it is today, um, you know, hopefully make some aspects of achieving passions and goals a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. 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 But I will say mm-hmm. on the design side of me, <laughs> Sorry. Linda is a nut today. I don't know what's going through her head.
0: Okay. You know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of the show Making It. I was distracted.
1: You just want to be upstairs making it?
0: Yeah, I just want to make stuff.
1: Linda is over the moon right now because the series Making It, that's Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler and Simon Doonan is one of the judges. Uh, Simon is on our podcast this week and I don't think, you know, Linda was stuttering over her words trying to get out and plus on top of that, Jonathan Adler. Jonathan Adler. Adler.
0: So yeah, I, I love that they're a couple and I love... Everything they do and- They're like the most
1: creative couple ever. Yeah,
0: I I trip over my words a a ton because I'm just- I'm just so giddy over that. She's <laughs>
1: giddy over it. I mean, this is exciting. I mean, for creative brains like ours, uh, we love digging into other creative brains. And Jonathan Adler is an inspiration on the design side. I mean, he is absolutely amazing. And his story is phenomenal too, how he got into designing- Both of them, yeah. Some of Yeah, some of the best uh, pieces um, in all different categories of furniture and home.
0: Okay, what would you say- defines your style in, in everything that you do? Like what is the, what is the thing that makes it Drew? What
1: is the essence of Drew? <laughs> water. Yeah. Water. That's my Zoolander. <laughs> um, I Lander. think, I think for me, I would have to say possibility in the sense that I want everyone to love their home. I want everybody to be inspired by their home and I want everyone to feel whatever it is that they love. There's not just one standard style of design that works for every family or every home. I want the possibilities to be endless in somebody's mind for their home.
0: So accessibility as Yeah, accessibility
1: as well. yeah. and excitement. I think that's what Scott Living and, and, and for me, that's what design is always all about. Mm-hmm. Design is so different for everybody.
0: I think bringing it back to the designer, you, I think you also exude that because you are very approachable and easy to talk to and you will talk to anyone and make them feel at home.
1: Oh, thanks, Boo.
0: That's all you're getting today.
1: Well, <laughs> speaking of couples that know how to compliment each other, two amazing designers, Jonathan Adler, Simon Doonan. Let's get into this conversation. <laughs> Okay, if ADT wasn't professional enough, now ADT installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security.
0: I mean, what are they gonna do next? They're they're gonna start a country singing career.
1: I would listen to a country band named ADT. Also, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with my Google Nest doorbell. Just saying. Your
0: Google Nest doorbell. I said our He said. My everybody check that. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to control my ADT smart devices, like my lights, my locks,
1: <laughs> my security system with Google Nest speakers and displays.
0: And I like to say, "Hey Google," to get started.
1: Listen, I said ours. I'm all about ours, not <laughs> mine. Help protect what matters most with all this plus 24 seven professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google
0: visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer I can feel
1: Well, it's nice to finally actually meet. I, I feel we should have met years ago. We've been big fans of both of you for many, many years. And, and you also inspire our inner designers, too. So thank you for that. Oh, that's, oh, that's so nice. sweet. We well, love everything uh, you guys do. You know, and
2: you guys have been our um, quarantine companions the whole time. <laughs> Although, really, it's the good brother, not you, who we were hoping it would be. But,
1: you know, oh, yeah. and that's my Bad older brother, all. JD, not Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, it's been, it's weird not being every day with Jonathan filming uh, all the time because we obviously were shut down, but we've been keeping busy filming a little bit at home and uh, just stuff that we can do together for our podcast and whatnot. So it's that's been keeping us nice. busy. Yeah. How about
0: you guys? How have um, been keeping busy?
1: We've been, we've been, well, we've been out here on Shelter Island for almost
2: three months now. Um, and some days are busy and other days are not, but. The magic of where we are is we're sort of in the middle of nature. So it's been sort of like a magical nature hideaway.
1: Nice.
3: Uh, I mean, is- I'm like you. I mean, I'm, I have that TV show, Making It, you know, on NBC, which is so fun. Oh, yeah, but we comes, know. Of course, we're on hold. Um, and so, but look, luckily, I've got my writing projects. I've just done another book, which comes out in the fall. I just finished that up. So it's great
1: for writing which requires so much time. Yeah, the writing we we've written a few books now and um our first book Dream Home it was about our process with clients and and what inspires us and it, you know it was not a fun write. It was there's was so much we had, and we had a bunch of, of our different designs that we had, you know we had to showcase and whatnot. it was so much work and digging into some of the it's not a how-to book, but there is some of that sort of element to it. And it wasn't a fun, right? However, we did our kids' book series, Builder Brothers, and that was just to inspire our young generation of, of you know, Builder Brothers and Builder Sisters. And that was a blast, just to sort of bring out our inner child and, and uh, try and figure out ways that we can inspire kids and, and bring positivity and good messaging to them. That was a lot of fun. What's your new book nice.
3: about? Um, it's called How to Be Yourself. And it's um, sort of a a humor-slash-self-help book about how to be yourself. And I sort of cite lots of people who are themselves, you know, look like themselves, blah, 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 have a very, you know, idiosyncratic kind of look to them.
2: But it's hilarious, like all of Simon's books. And he's actually the most annoying spouse one could ever have because, like, I've written books before, and when I have, I... Complain and I whinge and I'm like, "How can you bother me? I'm trying to do this like I'm in an unbearable nightmare." Whereas Simon just gets up, writes uncomplainingly, and the prose he turns out is magical, and <laughs> it makes me irate. It also destroys my whole my whole mm. thesis of our marriage has been that he's like the dumb one. Um, <laughs> and his damn books, ugh.
3: Well, oh last I did. I did a book on soccer players and then I did a book on the history of drag. And somebody emailed me and said, What gives you the what qualifies you to write about the history of drag? And I said, Do you have any idea what's involved in a book? How you know very few people have the stick to itedness to actually sit down and slog S L O G and re-slog, you know? Even doing a kid, you kids book, you probably have to redo it fifty times. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. that's what qualifies me. It's just like I yeah, do have that ability doing it. to just grind to get through the grind.
1: Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you why a soccer book though.
3: Oh, I love soccer because I'm English. Right. So, I grew up, I grew up with um, football, as we call it, and um, so. It's a book about, it's called Soccer Style, and it's all about the flamboyant, crazy excesses, the Lamborghinis, the Wags, the, you know, the Cristiano Ronaldo's, the Beckham's, going back all the way through history. Um, You know, it's, again, it's a humor book, but I did huge amounts of research for it. I read like a hundred tawdry, crappy footballer autobiographies just to get cheesy details out of them. So it's sort of... Because <laughs> in England, the, the culture of soccer is seen as being very amusing and funny, yeah. you know, in a way that mm. doesn't, wouldn't necessarily translate to an American sport. Right.
0: And, and this is for both of you, even though this is the theme of your new book. Why do you guys think it is so hard for everyone to be themselves?
3: Um, I think, especially now... With the internet and social media, people tend to look externally for approval, confirmation, validation. And if if you're just gonna be yourself, you have to be kind of just self-invented. And I have, you know, myriad examples of people who are just always themselves. Everyone from like Anna Winter right through to Robert Mueller to, you know, Young Thug the rapper. So like certain people just nail it with how they look, how they talk, how they present themselves. And it's completely in sync um, with who they are. You're that way. Yeah. We yeah. try to be.
1: Yeah, we definitely <laughs> like, try.
3: Yeah. Unless there's a, unless there's a Dr. Check on the hide thing going on, but you seem <laughs> like you're very much yourself. You know, but I,
2: th- I think Sliman and I both kind of, for some unknown reason, um, are very much ourselves and kind of have, I think maybe, I don't know why, but maybe because we're kind of insular in some way. Um, in both of our like creative outputs, it's very personal and idiosyncratic and I hope extremely unconventional.
3: I think, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I got it from my mom. I never heard her, her worry about what the neighbors think or what she should wear. She never said to other people, what are you wearing? What should I wear? Like, she was just incredibly... Confident and wasn't really interested in in other people's validation yeah. externally. And it's,
2: it's just as well for tough Simon, that, Irish. Yeah, tough. for Simon, yeah. he really shouldn't look for other people's validation because he's not going to get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> not from me, certainly not from strangers. Well, so I, good for you. Well, yeah, I was
3: in London during punk rock and everything, and we didn't weren't going around saying, "What oh, does my bum look big in this album? You know, no one said things like that. So that that constant need for reassurance, I'm always like. Well, why do you care? Yeah, just be yourself, you know? Yeah. I
2: provide okay. no positive feedback to him and <laughs> oh most of all, i point out his lack of height. Like right now, we're at the same height, only I'm sitting down and he's standing up.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Right? It's, uh...
0: like, Are
2: you sitting down or
1: standing? Do you guys
0: tease each other? I, I'm, I'm the tall one. In, she, in the she's also
1: standing up right now. I'm, I'm I'm actually laying down. And
0: Drew's on the toilet. <laughs> sitting on the toilet.
1: <laughs> yeah, what we, are your fights? Tell me so your So I'm six four and just over six four. And, and I'm she, barely five she one. She says five one. Yeah.
0: Well, someone asked me recently, like, oh, I read that you're 5'2. I'm like, I don't know where you got that from. It's I've gr- never <laughs> been 5'2. Growing Wild up, John- Jonathan's always
1: said that he's 6'5. And I said, we've never been 6'5 in our lives. And I'm taller Maybe than with you your are. Hair. But yeah, uh-huh. growing up, he would fluff his hair up because I was always a little taller. He would fluff his hair up so he could say he was taller than me. And uh, he got a lot of, of uh, gratification out of that when people thought he was taller. <laughs> but fashion growing up, our parents, you know, we were we were ranch kids. We were just cow kids, and uh, and so fashion wasn't a big thing. You just wear what's functional, and then you go to school and you learn. But. Um our parents dressed us in the same. It was different colors, but the same patterns. So uh, oh. Jonathan only got blue, and then I got everything else. I got and yellow and, and br- no. I actually love that I had variety of color, and I think that's what's made me more fashionable no, as you, an adult. Did
0: you hate that you had to wear the same <laughs> clothes?
1: Yeah, I mean they didn't force us to wear. I think as twins, we automatically started wearing because we had our closet we could pick from, or you know, my mom would pick the outfit sometimes, but um, she would yeah lay things out, and I we would just gravitate towards the same. Shirts in different colors. I don't know, twin thing, I guess. But uh, I'm it glad still I I grew away day. from that. Our older brother, he was he was very he was alternative and goth, and everything in his closet was black. And he would wear like knee high black boots and steel toed uh, like Doc Martins. And uh, and his style he didn't have a lot of style. He was just trying to well, express that was himself. His style. Well, he did that as a way to stand out against the man a little bit. And, and I think then it became his style because that was him rebelling. But then I remember I wanted to be my older brother. And so I started trying to dress like him. And then it was one day I, I was at school. I was dressed up again, trying to look like JD. And I was wearing these Brown pants and a green turtleneck shirt. And I looked at myself in a mirror and I'm like, I look like a friggin' tree. I didn't have any style. I didn't look like JD. I wasn't being myself. And that's when I started to realize why don't I just wear what I want to wear? What feels comfortable to me. So
3: Yeah, it's a journey being yourself. It takes it takes a while. Most people don't come right out the gate. There you you know, you, you end up getting there. Yeah.
2: Just two more little um poignant things about Simon and his height while we're on the subject. Um on I can his think I'm passport, three foot six. You're not. You're three five. At least three foot seven. Um <laughs> on his passport. Simon says he's five foot four and a half. Mm-hmm. Isn't that heartbreaking? That little half inch.
1: Does it make a difference, Simon? Um, well, my passport is so old because I'm so
3: old. I can't even remember <laughs> what the... I think back then they even measured you. No, that's there's no way.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, if they, they measured you, it would be five foot two.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, <No. laughs> if they were... Yeah, poor thing, bless his heart. Anyway, sorry.
1: Where does So where does Sliman come from? And you call each other Sliman and Johnny. Where does that come from?
2: Um, Well, we've been together a really long time, so like 25 years, so things develop. Um, (laughs) But I think also, maybe it's because we're both dudes, um, our relationship is just relentlessly, ruthlessly mocking each other, um, and there's almost no limits.
3: Yeah, whereas my straight friends, male and female, like yourselves, um, you know, the guy tends to tread on eggshells a little bit you know there's certain things you can't say whereas the two guys think of think of how you are with your friends yeah you say the most appalling things to each other and then fall about laughing so the two guys you know we have that whereas my um i'm not no tea no shade i'm just uh, just reporting here like uh (laughs) Um, is, that's why I said, do you guys tease each other? How no, far do you go?
0: There's so much truth to that, and we can we can go deep into this because oh, yeah. Drew knows that he can he can joke with me and tease me. However, if it comes from me, it's very different because he doesn't always expect it, and then maybe it maybe he thinks it's mean, and I'm like, that's not fair. You can't you can't dish it wow. and not so be able to take one, it. That's you're, the
2: um, thing. It's always a bait and switch. Like yeah. it's always like people, are, you know, it's always like the guy who really can't handle it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, so what well, we laugh about, cause I'm very sarcastic and I, I like to use with anyone I, I'm talking to. I like to use humor as a way to sort of like break the ice a little bit or, or ease the conversation and, Uh, so the way I talk with my brothers or or my buddies, we'll just be flat out straight to each other and and tease each other, no problem, we laugh it off, but then with Linda, I'll do the same thing a little bit, but then every now and then, what she does is, she mocks my voice so she'll start doing impersonations of me, (laughs) and I'm like, okay and then she keeps doing it, I'm like okay. And then she keeps saying, I'm like, why are you doing that? That's really annoying. Why do you keep this? It's because
0: he yells.
1: Because he can't take it. (laughs) volume (laughs) control. I have no volume. Mm -hmm. I have no modulation. I'm a robot. (laughs) And uh, anyway, so I'm always yelling, but uh, no, overall, I think that's one reason we do have a healthy relationship is because we know deep down, we know we love each other. And even if something, you know, how she communicates something might be taken slightly different from me, or anytime you communicate, the other person might receive it slightly differently. But I think we know we love each other deep down, and we love to joke, and so at the end of the day, it's not that that big a deal.
0: And when you guys met, is that something you you quickly learned about each other that you're like, okay, we we can tease, and it's okay, or is that something you developed over the 25 years? Um,
3: I think I we're both like from a little kind of crappy towns, and we both kind of clawed our way into the metropolis. And, like where I grew up, everyone teased each other. Like it, re- it was
2: relentless. It was pretty much like, on from day one, I would say. I don't think there so, was ever, yeah. there was no pause of poly test. Like that wasn't a thing. was so not a
1: thing. When, when you, so, this was at Barney's, right? Back in the day. Um,
0: yeah. How did you guys meet?
2: So, I, it was 25 years ago, and we met on a blind date. And we kind of knew who each other were because I had been selling my pottery at Barney's, where Simon was the creative director. Um, and he knew who I was because I was selling my pottery at Barney's only at the time I was sort of like a struggling bohemian young, incredibly young and very cute, um, 28, potter, 28. Um, I was like a kind of bohemian potter on rollerblades and Simon was sort of a fancy famous fashion celebutant. And I thought, ugh it'll, you know, he'll be too fancy for me. Like, and I told our mutual <laughs> friend, I don't think it'll work. And he said, no, I think you'll, um, hit it off. And now... Here
1: we are. Well, I think uh, obviously that dynamic of your relationship and the fun, like you were saying, the way you like to tease each other. I, I honestly think that's what can make a relationship grow stronger. You have to be able to not take yourself too seriously. Yes. Relationship be teased and, goals. And I mean, how can you not be teased as a young bohemian on rollerblades? Uh, thinking you're the next, Yeah. <laughs> the next big thing. Yeah. But so, and then Jonathan, with your growth um, as a designer and, and starting with pottery, Kind of give us that path that that moved you into who you are today because you inspire even us in the industry designers doing what we do. You inspire us. I mean, you, you're, you're, your your um, products are so creative um, and and diverse as well. I mean, I'd love to I'd love to hear from you what you feel your sort of niche is and how you got there.
2: That's first of all very sweet. I've had a really Strange and not terribly easily um, replicated career. I started out as a potter, um, like 26. Well, I started out actually when I was a kid. Um, I fell in love with clay at summer camp and always wanted to be a potter. But like I went to Brown for college and thought, oh, I need to have a fancy, you know, proper career. Um, So when I graduated, I tried to work in the entertainment industry and I, I got fired from like a series of jobs and was a complete and total loser. So I found (laughs) myself at 27, unemployed and unemployable. uh, And I started teaching night classes in Hell's Kitchen at a pottery studio called Mud, Sweat, and Tears. And I would teach night classes and in exchange, they gave me studio space. And I sort of thought to myself, all right, I'm going to try to become a potter. The stakes are so low because it's such a Strange world where there's no, you know, there's not really an upside. You can't become rich and successful as a potter, um, so I'm just going to try to unless you're Harry Potter. Well, yeah, unless you're <laughs> Harry Potter, that's the only one. Um, so I thought I'm just going to like accept that this is a low stakes enterprise and really try to follow my heart and kind of just design what I want to make, make it as idiosyncratic and personal as it can be, and Try to be as prolific and creative as I can be. That was kind of how I always um, thought I would do things. And I've pretty much stayed true to that. And my whole career has been a complete accident. I never really thought I would have a proper business. I thought I would just, you know, make pots, sell them at like a rain soaked craft fair. That was kind of what I imagined my idea of success would be uh, if I could just be hawking my wares at a rain soaked craft fair, but if they were very personal. And what's unfolded has been super unexpected, totes delightful, um, and endlessly creative and stimulating and fulfilling.
1: And what was the transition point going from just just your pottery into so many different categories within the home space?
2: Well, so I was when, when shrimp first met me, I was a full-time production potter.
3: Shrimp, no, I'm a shrimp. <laughs> mm. That's two nicknames. When
2: um, I was a full-time production potter, meaning I would like get up in the morning, make a hundred mugs, go to sleep, get up in the morning, make 25 teapots, go to sleep. And Sliman said, there's no way you'll ever expand creatively or as a business, unless you find somebody to help manufacture your stuff. And I said, no, there's, that's impossible. I could never, no one can do it as I can. And then I happened upon a workshop in Peru. This was like uh, over 20 years ago. Um, that uh, was making pottery. They were kind of just this, like it was just a random thing. I met them through this nonprofit called Aid to Artisans that helped uh, artisans in the developing world connect with American designers. Anyway, I went to Peru and it was just kind of clicked. It was kind of kismet. And I spent like a couple of months there and sort of taught this workshop how to produce my stuff. And I went from working 80 hours a week behind the wheel to not having to work 80 hours a week behind the wheel, but having 80 hours a week to think and dream. Um, And so I just sort of step by step thought, all right, well, so they've taken care of the pots that I've been making. What other pots Mm -hmm. could I make? And so then I just kept expanding that. And then I thought, all right, well, if I'm making all these pots, um, perhaps they should be sitting on a table and the table should be next to a sofa um, and then I found mm. some weavers in Peru to, d- to design pillows. And so it's just been a very accidental, unplanned, mm. um, and sort of random evolution.
1: Which all came, it sounds like, from Sliman. If he didn't push you, then...
3: Yes. Well, I used to make the analogy with fashion. I said, can you imagine Giorgio Armani making every jacket? You're insane. You'd never get yeah. anything done. Lord John Donna Karen at the sewing machine trying to knock out every dress. <laughs> like, you know, it's laughable to think about. So you got but initially he was like, oh no, no one can throw like me. I'm the only one that can throw. And throw a fit. What, I think is that you have to have that feeling that you're executing at the top of your level. Then yeah. you can actually let go of it and, and right. have other delegate it because yeah. you're already, you know, obsessive about yeah. it. It kind of makes, it
2: accidentally makes sense that I evolved into a designer. And I think I also always thought of my work in a decorative context. Like I thought, oh, this, you know, these pots that I'm making would be really groovy in a palazzo in Capri or, you know, so I, I was always thinking about things in the context of interior design.
0: Where did that come from? Like growing up, did your parents always encourage you just to do what you wanted or did you have to break Um, out of that and find it yourself?
2: uh, My dad, my I would love to say that I'm a unique, incredible creation that has nothing to do with my parents, but the reality is I am like a complete merging of my two parents' sensibilities. My dad was a lawyer, but he was sort of a brilliantly talented artist who was a very rigorous modernist. And my mom is a very sort of flamboyant and creative chick. And I would say my sensibility is a direct like combination of their two things it's sort of like an undercurrent sort of rigorous modernism that i get from my pop and a sense of color and flamboyance that i get from my mom um and they always like they got me a potter's wheel and kiln when i was a kid and i think i'm nice. sure they thought it would be just a phase and i would do something uh better with my life but here i am <laughs> i became a potter and i married a window dresser
1: Life. <laughs> <Love it. laughs> Life. So Simon, growing up for, for you, what was your dynamic as as a, a kid and did that shape you into who you are today?
3: Um, well, I, I think I'm a bit like Johnny, amalgam of the two parents. My mom was sort of working class Irish from Belfast and uh, she left school at 13. You know, she was working in a grocery chain by the time she was you Know 15 and uh, her big emphasis was you, you. The two things I think I got from her was like it's very important how you present yourself, you have to pull your look together. You know, she always had, even when she was had nothing, um, mm-hmm. she always looked good, she pulled it together, and she was also re- relentlessly focused on the importance of paying your way. You know, you've got to earn a living, you've You know, when I I left school when I was 16 and then I subsequently went back, but she forced me to immediately sign on and get my national insurance number. And I had to go work at this factory immediately. Like, you know, you're supposed to be, it's in her world, it was very easy to fall through the cracks. You had to work, work, work. She had an incredible work ethic. She always had like two or three jobs. And, um, but she was very creative and fun too. And my dad, um, was completely unconventional in his way of seeing the world. You know, he had a terrible childhood. My mom had had a difficult childhood. My dad had a very difficult childhood. His dad killed himself. His mother um, went crazy and had a lobotomy. I mean, it's a real, terrible saga. My dad actually ran away from home when he was 15 and joined the Air Force. So he wasn't... He was completely self-raised, you know? So the two of them... Were, were quite unconventional in the way they saw the world, and they thought being conventional, being a conformist, that wasn't good. You had to just figure figure out your own way of seeing the world, which they both had.
2: I would highly recommend reading Simon's memoir, Beautiful People, which is pure genius. It was and it was made in. I hate giving him compliments because, as I said, it destroys. Every all of my hard work that I've put in to make him think that he's very very dumb and incompetent, but his books are genius and beautiful. People might be my favorite. It's his memoir, and it was uh, it was made into a series by the BBC. Yeah, um, and the truth of Simon. Simon's sort of a miracle because, you know, he's known as... I don't want him to hear anything that I'm going to say. Never, it's really your ears, Simon? It's really terrible complimenting him, but I'll go for it anyway. Oh, we've got, that. we've got that.
3: Just point. to make it clear.
2: <laughs> luckily, he's like very old and senile, so I'm sure he'll forget anything I've said. But anyway, he <laughs> has become sort of a legendary fashion person and style person. Um, and I think, you know, people think he's this sort of fancy pants thing, but the reality is his childhood was like something out of Dickens. Like, he, his parents met in a soup kitchen after World War II. He was born in a two-room flat with no running water, and he grew up in a rooming house with his lobotomized grandmother, his schizophrenic uncle... His blind aunt and his lesbian sister, and his two oh insane parents. So, read Beautiful People. It's an incredible read. Yes. And it's hilarious, it's really good. <laughs>
0: I, I can see how you have to create humor, you know, out of necessity to stay sane.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was very much the post-war British mentality. You know, humor was really important because people were kind of walking out of the rubble with nothing. Just ration books in one hand and, you know, spam in the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh...
2: <laughs> Spam and rations, the Simon story.
1: Yeah, so humor, hugely important. With your uh, young years, you're still in your young years, in my opinion. But when you, when you were young... <laughs> um That's I a try. good one. I, I tried. Like I'm here to dish the compliments. Um, but So as a, as a teenager and, and growing up, you said your sister was gay as well. Was that a struggle for you guys in a time when it was not accepted?
3: Um. Yeah, I think so. But it was so not accepted that... Um, you know, you you realize, oh my God, I'm one of them. You know, <laughs> that's thrown in prison or given electric shock treatment, or you know, like you get it when in the ni- early '60s, and you know, it was only legalized in 1967, so it was all illegal, blah blah blah. And I just thought, oh, I have to escape. I was always very optimistic. I think I thought, um, you know, you think, oh yeah, but there's more of our more of them in London, so I'll escape. So you see, you know, you figure out how to escape. And that's what people did, which looking back is not great. There's no reason why people should have to either wither away in their hometown or escape mm-hmm. to the big city. But that's basically what people did. I think, and it's but, nice now I see gay people have fantastic relationships with their parents. They don't feel the need to do that. They're in constant contact with them. But I will say, I think being marginalized in that way it does, it can make you very creative and, and a lot of explosive creativity can come out of that feeling of, you know, it produces all that crazy creative explosion that you had in the 60s.
2: And I would, I would also say though, Simon, like you kind of did a leapfrogging of class, you know, he was born, he was raised with like nothing, like dirt poor. And I think being gay, you know, it's a challenging journey, but it can it's kind of a community in which um, class distinctions can be kind of erased. So in that sense, it's actually really positive.
3: Yeah, I don't complain much because, like, things worked out for me. And during this um, lockdown, I've been emailing a lot with a lot of guys that I went to school with that I I haven't communicated much with. People have been, you know, getting in touch with each other in ways that they haven't before. And, um, you know... I realised that I'm the one that actually made all these leaps and bounds, and it was many. mean, a function of being gay, you had to, you know, Coco Chanel. She had a terrible early life, and she she's quoted as saying something like, "My life did not please me, so I created my life." And mm. um, mm. you know, and I feel like a lot of gay people, my generation, we had to do that. Mm. I, you, you couldn't just take what was there; you had to.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and you're right. It is a total unifier. You know, any I think any downfall, if you share it with someone, it it connects you, and I think that's the most beautiful thing about you know pride parades and all of these communities coming together. Like it's it's bursting with with love and acceptance because they couldn't find that anywhere else, so they created that community.
2: Um, Upon reflection, it is really a strange, strange journey, and a lot of gays are really creative and it's just mystifying like how it all happens, why it is, why we all gravitate towards such creative fields. It's like, I think it's just one of those mysteries of nature and humanity that I don't think anyone really understands, but the role mm. of creativity in the gay community is sort of undeniable. And it's just, who knows yeah. why? No,
1: exactly. It's, your next it's, book, it's, There you go. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, when my dad was in his eighties, I think he'd heard by then enough radio, BBC programs about how, you know, mm-hmm. gay people can be very isolated, and if you've got a gay kid, you should talk to them, and but and he'd been hearing this for the last sixty years. So he said to me, apropos of nothing one day, he said, "You know, it's really good that you didn't come to me when you realised you were a homosexual," <laughs> and try to discuss it with me. It's good that you didn't do that. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) And he said, because I wouldn't have known what the fuck to say to you. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was incredibly honest. It was very sweet. Yeah, the the opposite of
2: how people are now. The opposite
3: of now. um, But it was, you know, the honesty of that was very touching in a way.
1: Well, it's, I guess, his way of of showing that he's he's grown and he's learned and he's... I, I think that's... One thing that I've noticed, because we've traveled a fair bit when we were younger too and we see different cultures and different ways of people living and it opens up your eyes to there's more than just you and what you grew up with. And um, and I think that was an important thing that our parents showed us, that we were able to see different ways that people live and, and um, whether it's sexuality or whether it's cultural or whether it's um, legit, religious beliefs. and
0: I mean, even now, we're also afraid of saying the wrong thing or, or being PC and... You could be very well-intentioned, but say the wrong thing because you don't know the proper language. So, yeah, I, I think it is really cool to see the evolution of, of I guess, humans and how we can respect and show respect to one another.
2: Yeah. Although I got to say, like, I grew up in a, uh, you know, I'm obviously younger than Simon, of course. Um, but I had, had more work done. I should have gotten a lot of work done right before going into quarantine. I like blew it. But anyway, um, you know, we. I grew up in a time when, yeah, of course you didn't talk to your parents about sex. And I think there was a lot to be said for being furtive. Like, I think that's a one of the sad things about today is now when everyone talks about everything, like kids aren't furtive anymore. And that's a problem. Like, I, I was very happy to be able to uh, not have to talk about icky things to my parents. And I think that's actually... Um, the right way to do it but i know i know that's like a very um old school and um terribly unprogressive way to be but i liked being furtive and secretive
0: i, I, think, I didn't talk to, to my parents i yeah. yeah i didn't i couldn't talk to my parents or family about any of that icky stuff but i think as long as you have someone to talk to about it or you know or yeah. feel well, free to, the to ponder kid, you
2: typically don't actually just which
0: yeah which is you know, so like
2: it's Yeah. You're kind of like living in your own little Mm. world about it, but like, whatever, no. Then
3: you have to get into retail. That's the only (laughs) option And then you can't stop talking about it.
2: That's the problem. (laughs) You spend your first like 18 years not talking about it and then you're like, ugh, just shut up (laughs) about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't stop. But so uh, you had your um, young years as a young potter following this passion you didn't. Uh, you want at first. You were saying you didn't want to go big, um, create this empire. You just wanted to do what you love to do, and even if it wasn't going to be um, uh, a, re- a revenue potential for for growth, um, but then it had exploded into this um, entire brand that you have that inspires the world. People know you globally and they know your products and they know your, your style. So when you think your, your aesthetic, you have what, what's on the shelf and you have what's in in magazines and everywhere that, that has your, your products and your brand. But what would you say is your style? What's your favorite aesthetic?
2: Um, it's a great question. I mean, I, actually being on lockdown has been an incredible thing because I've lived surrounded by all my stuff. And it's really kind of given me an opportunity to look at the breadth of stuff I've made and all the different media and kind of styles ranging from like kind of crafty and artisanal to I hope witty to, I also sort of just ethereal and beautiful, like all all different styles. Um, I've done them all and kind of trying to understand what the through line is. Um, we sort of have a three word description for my brand and we call it modern American glamour. And I think that that, encap- that kind of encapsulates everything that I've made sort of in the sense that I think modern because I strive to make things that are new and um, unusual and, and modern. American, because I'm very rooted in American design. I think there's sort of an innate optimism to American design, whether it's color or possibility. Um, I think I'm a very American designer. And glamour is one of those words that people throw around that is very hard to define. Um, You know, it means different things to different people. But to me, glamour means swagger. It means making things that are memorable and confident. And um, I think, I hope that everything I make does have that sense of swagger and memorableness and idiosyncrasy. So yeah, modern American glamour.
0: And that's that's the main thing I get from both of your your work is the feeling that it exudes. And it's not even... I don't even have the design vocabulary to explain it, but it is a feeling of joy and whimsy and wittiness that you don't see anywhere else. And it's so consistent in everything you guys do.
2: Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah, I think Simon and I kind of have a shared sensibility in that we are, um, I hope, both connoisseurial and kind of committed to... um, good design certainly in simon's windows at barney's which are so legendary there was always a foundation of like visual majesty they always looked incredible but there was always a top note of humor and i think it's really a challenge to combine things that are unimpeachably chic with a top note of cheeky i think that's some Mm. uh, sort of space that both shrimp and i have um have yeah. managed to navigate for ourselves, and it's a really delicate
1: balance. And, and honestly, I I think that that is the the key. What you said there, because there are a lot of people that have beautiful design. There are a lot of people who have that that um, ability, but they don't have that little something that makes it unique. They don't have that something quirky, fun, throwing a little tease out there. And and like you're saying too, in uh, at Barney's uh, the storefronts. By the way, Simon, that is Linda's dream job. Uh, is, is to do that, but yeah, uh, I'm
0: really keeping it cool right now. <laughs> it's
1: the, it's that personality, that little punch of personality, not not being afraid to get get in somebody's face a little bit with something that really makes us stand out as elite.
3: Yeah, well, and I, when new people came to Barney's or when we'd open a new Barney's in a new location in a new town, and I'd have to explain to the display people, it would be it would not, it's not hard to explain. I'd say, okay, you're doing a men's suit window, so you get your merchandise, you put it beautifully on the forms, press everything, and then you put it in the window and you light it, and now what? You have to maybe take 300 mannequin hands and hang them from the ceiling and put like a necktie in each one. Something unexpected has to happen, otherwise no one is going to stop and look. So everything had to have that little, um, little flash of eccentricity, a little je ne sais quoi of something, Mm. otherwise you're completely wasting your time. And why would anybody look if you're not, mm -hmm. if you're just doing conventional stuff? So you guys know that too. You know, there has to be some little flash of idiosyncrasy. Yeah,
2: Yeah, otherwise, what is the point? There's really, like, I think that um, we're both sort of very, you know, we come across as quite um, upbeat and glib, but I think that in order to be a good designer or writer, you actually just have to be intensely self-critical and analytical. Um, You know, it's really a process of like editing and trying trying to analyze what is working, what isn't working and how to make something a little bit extra. So I think that's, you know, whether it's Simon's unbelievable windows at Barney's or his writing, he kind of has the same sensibility in these different creative Mm. endeavors. And it's also dissonant with his true self, which is very, very, very dumb.
1: <laughs> mm, good. That's very well, that's deep. Why I love,
3: <laughs> that's why I love my gig on making it because um, with crafting, I had to learn to say crafting because I was saying crafting. And it, oh, yeah. and
2: you you bring an
1: elevated elegance crafting. to crafting.
3: Crafting. crafting. Well, no, with crafting, um, it has to be, there has to be something ridiculous about it. There has to be something um, very human, some. Something hilarious, something just off. Otherwise, again, you know, you're making, you know, a styrofoam heart with baby's breath in it for Valentine's Day. Like, why? Like, there has (laughs) to be something charming and idiosyncratic about it. No boring.
1: Nobody wants boring. There's enough boring mm, out there. It needs to stand out. It needs to be unique. I mean, what, what I think is. We're, we're on this planet to learn and grow and make a difference and everything we, you know, with our shows and our designs, what we do, every family is different. They want to they wanna experience their home the way that they love, but they also want, you know, I, I feel our job as designers is to try and understand what people are looking for, but then to pull them outside of their comfort zone and show them a little something unique that they love, that, but they never knew it existed and I, well, I, I
3: let do me. I, w- I wanted to ask you this specifically. When you're dealing with these clients, are they um, do you have a, do you have to put a lot of effort into separating them from looking at their own home through somebody else? They want it done so that the neighbors think it looks good, or so that it presents really well, so it seems like it would receive accolades yeah. from out there. Whereas. And get them focused on what they
1: want. Yeah, I mean, it's as you guys probably know, most couples don't agree on anything uh, when it comes to their home. Like their style is not exactly the same. There would be certain things that one loves more than the other, and so it's you know we we kind of feel like we're therapists at times because we uh, we deal with a lot of the stress. And so we listen to them together. We walk through the home with them together. Then we, John. That's what I like working with Jonathan because then we'll split them up, and then Jonathan and I will get some one-on-one with each of the couple. And then the things that come out there were never said when they were together. Um, And so then we start to figure out that overall puzzle of of how can we mesh these two styles if someone is saying that they want that more modern aesthetic, or somebody wants something that's a bit more traditional or transitional. Well now we can start to merge an overall look and feel and function for for them so that they'll both enjoy and yeah. the kids will enjoy.
0: And and in terms of separating it from what they really want versus what's just trendy or what they think their neighbors might like, you guys are very deliberate about going through a process of listing, making a list of their wish list items, like their yeah. must-haves or nice-to-haves. And I think when you're writing it out, you do question like, "Oh, is this something I want or that, you know, Um, a a magazine told me I should want.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people too, at the end of the day, you know, our Property Brothers Forever Home, the the new version of Property Brothers that we've had the last couple of years, the whole reason we shifted to that show, it it was a lot of our fans were saying, you know, you're renovating houses for people who are out there looking to buy and renovate. What about all of us that already live in a house that's just not quite functioning for us? So now we're renovating houses that people have been in. Most of the time, they've inherited the home from their family or the kids were raised there. They have history. And so, in that whole process, we start to very quickly be able to see what truly does have meaning for them, what's important to them. And what were some of those bling things they were just trying to add on to impress impress the neighbors or when they invite friends over. And I find at the end of the day that they can get that same style and function and flow when they really do focus on what's most important for them.
2: Yeah. Uh, You guys are alchemists. I mean, we're kind of playing it cool as well. and trying not to geek (laughs) out, but like what you guys do is, Unbelievable, and the fact that you've done it four hundred times—it's like, wait, what? Like, what a couple of slackers we are.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're all slackers. We're all we're
1: all working hard. But I was going to say though, uh, so Simon, for making it, hands down, Linda's My favorite series ever. Show. And so was you know when. Well, my ego her. trying to make sure that she's, when I'm not home, she's watching Property Brothers. I come home and she's watching you.
0: All the time. But uh,
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Nick and Amy make it fun and enjoyable. And, the, and then you bring your personality, you bring in your, uh, your quips and, and fun moments and the way you inspire the best out of people. It's really great. I, I love it. It's, it's a show that I honestly never thought would get made because Linda's been saying for years, mm-hmm. there needs to be a crafting show. There needs to be a show that has more than just typical home design. And you guys to yeah. be fun.
3: Well, it, I'm very lucky because it fits me like a glove because I've spent decades making giant poodles out of old feather dusters and <laughs> like making things out of other things. And, and it, window display, as I interpreted it at Barney's, was immensely crafty. Like we would never buy props from a prop house, we'd make everything. Yeah. Just because I liked the way that looked. I thought mm-hmm. that was a good juxtaposition with the luxury product of Barney's. The hokiness of paper mache, and I loved all that. So, and,
1: and, and also, you Dana- can brag that uh, you beat somebody else out for the gig. So,
3: uh, uh-huh.
2: oh, <laughs> oh I know In <laughs> fact, Simon and I were both up for the same gig, and it did come down to the two of us. And of course, I assumed it was going to be me, as anyone would. <laughs> he um, was
3: picking out his outfits, on-camera outfits already. And oh. Yeah. it's like, yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I was like,
2: do you think I should stay at the Chateau Marmont in LA? Or you see me more at the Four
3: Seasons? <laughs> or the Red Roof Inn. No offense. Y-
2: yeah. Or the Red Roof Inn, probably. Local <laughs> motel. Yeah. yeah. Two, the phone rings, Slime gets the part. Voila
3: and then my co-judge is fantastic. my co-judge Dana Eisen Johnson is from Etsy so she has this unbelievable um, macro view of what's going on in the world of crafts she can tell you unicorns are trending unicorns aren't trending <laughs> you know like the, she has this global she has a
2: unicornometer like terrarium
3: <laughs> you know these things come and go uh, on a global perspective and it's really fun to hear her
0: perspective that's something i've always wondered where do trends come from like when when you I see know. a season and you see you know the the different themes that that come up again and again like where do they come from who starts it at, like Who's i know that i know off. there are trendsetters yeah and and icons but like where did why are you guys all plucking from the same thing i just don't it is don't mysterious isn't well, it well in it's fashion in
3: fashion trends used to come <laughs> You know, it used to be that leopard print would go come in, and then go out of style, and you wouldn't see it again for 15 years. You know, like now though, you want leopard print, Google it, and there's so yeah. the, the fashion world has become different that way. It's this enormous amount of trends are all concurrently available, but in terms of crafting, um, how these things mysteriously trend and then recede again, no, it's it's quite fascinating. I would love to know how and why. I guess little things can trigger trigger it. You know. Yeah. I
2: think, I mean, to me design is kind of a dialogue. You know, it's as, as much as I would like to believe I'm completely original, of course my work is in dialogue with the past, the present, I hope the future. Um, and it is strange how you'll see something. Someone will have some little innovation, they might not even recognize it, and then you'll say, yeah, huh that's interesting. And you'll do it and it'll just start to sort of build. And like, like for instance, I would say white boucle is like a trend that's happening in the design world in a huge way. And a few years ago, I just kind of got it into my head. Like, um, I make a lot of furniture abroad and wherever I'd be looking in any fashion, any fabric house, I'd be like, do you have a white boucle? And they were like, what? And I was just obsessed with it. I don't know why. So what and I'm then, hearing
3: from you is that you started white. Well, bouquet. I was trying not to say it,
2: but yes, yeah, <laughs> I. <laughs> Somebody's claiming to the,
3: white boucle. Yeah, you're
2: talking <laughs> to the person who basically popularized white boucle. It wasn't Coco um,
3: Chanel. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just
2: one of those things, though, that like you just kind of like get it into your brain. I'm sure a billion other people were thinking like, "Where's all the white boucle?" And it just, and then it surfaces, and it kind of it just starts to happen.
1: I, it's weird. I'm starting the next trend with our, I'm going to start, it's going to be the, the trender.org and that's where it'll all come yeah. from Probably. moving I'm forward. In. Yeah.
0: It's I like, why it. do I keep craving ice cream? It's because yeah. I always look at human. the ice cream vase. Oh. The, uh, the ice oh, yeah. cream cone vase.
1: <laughs> nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh yep. so what's something aside from work, what's something that is that nerdy obsession for you guys? What's something that you really enjoy just kicking it back and, and taking on, whether it's a vacation, a destination, or whether it's just something at home?
3: I just went paddleboarding. What kind of obsessed with paddleboarding?
1: Yeah, like I'm
2: the second we get off the phone, I'm hopping on my paddleboard because we are lucky to live in kind of a natural paradise here on Shelter Island and um We live right on the sea and it's beautiful and we see seals and there's a bald eagle that's nesting like right next to our property. So we're kind of like a couple of um, lucky nature, like um, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn people right now, just sort of like exploring nature.
1: That's great. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Drew sucks at paddleboarding. I, I cannot he, stay on top. So no, He tries you know to push me off and I won't fall. Low center of
3: gravity. Somebody said to me, yes. would you wear a wetsuit? And I said, I never fall off. So See? why would I have to zip myself in low center of gravity? Oh, and there also we being
2: well-coordinated
1: helps. I, I was going to say, I, I can picture <laughs> Simon on the on the paddleboard wearing full full done up, like to the nines, like red carpet, wearing heels, the hair done, <laughs> Why do you need a wetsuit? I don't need a wetsuit. And then <laughs> yeah. I would be the one that would fall face first into the water. I am coordinated though. That's the thing. I play all sports and I, I'm, I'm the athlete in the family, but I cannot, um, on a Linda link is one thing. Otherwise. When I'm on the in the ocean, like when you're on the edge of the ocean, when as soon as the waves come in, He's like, uh, I'm off. <laughs> I, 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 we, we went out, we were for an hour, we were out there. Her and her sister didn't fall off once and I was in the water every 20 seconds. And it was so annoying. And trying to
0: play like American Gladiator where you like
1: trying to knock sho- them off.
0: shove each other off Yeah, and he <laughs> falls every single time.
1: It's Aww. a
3: height thing, don't feel bad. Feel bad, it's, it's okay. lack of
1: coordination. Yeah. <laughs> so hold on a second, Jonathan, how tall are you? You never said. 5'7".
3: <laughs> Wait a
1: second. I'm basically. (laughs) You're making fun (laughs) of Simon's height? (laughs) Yeah, I seven
3: every 30 seconds and he's I basically found wild, the one.
2: Johnny. I found the one human being on earth who is shorter than me and that was his only qualification for being my husband. You know, like I actually I can be, I actually don't even really like him but I was like you're shorter than me, great. You'll do.
1: <laughs> uh, a huge thank you to you guys for taking the time to chat with us. It's been a lot thank of fun. You so much. Thank yeah. you. Guys,
2: this is like a corona highlight. You're adorable, adorable
0: people. Oh, we and love you guys. Finally and we hope chat. we can get together in person soon.
2: Yeah. Oh god, that that'd be delightful.